All right, we are live uh, with the Deadly Analysis Podcast. Welcome. Uh, if you're new to this podcast, um, how do I explain what's going to happen tonight? Uh, this is a place where we essentially unlock all of the fears of good horror films. We collect them, if you will. We categorize them, um, hold them captive, you know, those sorts of monsters. And every so often, usually on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, we let one of them loose. We let it loose. Uh, we observe it and we discuss it. Uh, we, telk, we take the elevator ride down to the dark side. Uh, if that sounds intelligent, it's because I completely made that up right now. Me, Noah, I take credit for that statement. Um, so, uh, and that kind of that kind of gives us a segue into our film. Who would have thunk it? Um, so, the movie we are discussing tonight is the 2012 horror film, a uh, Joss Whedon horror film, The Cabin in the Woods. If you don't know who Joss Whedon is, may the merman kill you in your sleep because you are a moron. You are a moron who needs to turn in his or her nerd card. We're talking Buffy, we're talking Angel. Firefly, Dr. Horrible sing-along blog, a bunch of Marvel films, and um, a forthcoming one that I'm really excited about, um, which is a, a horror slasher film, actually written by uh, and produced by Joss Whedon that takes place uh, in World War II. So it'd be kind of cool. Film doesn't have a title at this point, but it sounds pretty awesome. Um, so tonight's film, though, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, tell me if this sounds familiar. Bunch of horny college kids take a trip uh, into a secluded cabin in the woods for a getaway fueled by drugs and hormones only to be stalked and massacred by an evil that lurks in the ominous woods. Pretty familiar, right? Pretty tropey, some could say. In fact, a little too familiar, a little too tropey. But in this film, the familiar and the trope are there for a very purposeful and very real reason. Um, our horny college kids in this film were hand-selected by an organization within the government to partake in a ritual of sorts. Uh, every action of the teenagers in this movie is monitored on their way to and at the cabin, and they're eventually led to the basement of the cabin where they stumble upon a broad array of artifacts that, unbeknownst to them when interacted with, summons a particular type of monster that comes and kills them all, right? Um, and why is this governmental organization doing all of this? Well, the answer is actually really simple because Sigourney Weaver's in charge of everything. That was clearly the fuck up from the very beginning. The alien just totally messed her up. Um, so, so, so the fact that all of these youthful little shits all conform to kind of archetypal conceptions like the whore and the athlete and the scholar and the fool and the virgin, um, these this is happening because these these folks have to be sacrificed apparently to ancient and evil gods that lie dormant under the earth and i did not see that coming in the film it was one of the things that completely took me for a loop i knew there was something weird going on with the shadowy government thing but to know that that was the reason was a little weird um so like i'll just kick it off i'm kind of already doing this by saying that i i love them i actually really love this movie it's one of my all-time favorite films actually period not just horror films i i love this movie and I love it because of the self-aware the, the self nature and kind of the double perspective offered by the film. I've often argued that The Cabin in the Woods is one of the few uh, truly postmodern horror films um, that I enjoy, somewhat similar to the original Scream, which I also think is another uh, postmodern horror film. Both, to some extent, are fairly genre-bending, and, and there's a kind of acknowledgement of the banality of prior horror lineage. Um, and it's literally woven, in fact, into the dialogue of the characters taking part in this film. Um, and, you know, to me, a, a, a postmodern horror film or postmodern film really is one that acknowledges within itself, like the rules upon which it, it itself subsists, right? And then only to later on completely remove the rug from underneath its own feet, right? So it kind of makes explicit a sort of formula and then mocks it and laughs at it. And um, 
you know, there's a couple scenes in this movie that are like this. The, the one that always hits me is the one at the, like, the very end of the film. It's also a very nihilistic scene. It's the scene where the virgin looks over uh, to the fool. So Dana, I think it's Dana, looks over at Marty and says something like um, uh, humanity, right? Very pessimistic, like humanity, it's, it's time to give someone else a chance, right? And there's a kind of like, our time is up. It's time for something else. Uh, our law and order is over, right? And now that I think about it, there's actually another scene at the at the very beginning of the movie where Marty, consequently the fool, um, uh, says something like, um, "Society needs to crumble, but we're just too we're just too chicken shit to admit it." As I, I think his line, and I think these two statements, one at the beginning of the film, one at the end, reflect a kind of um, post formula post-structural sort of idea. At least that's, we'll, we'll tease that out tonight. I, at least that's what I get from it. And um, since we're talking about post-modernity, there really is no right or wrong answer. So if you disagree with me, fuck you. Um, so I'm getting ahead with myself. Uh, let's uh, let's kind of open this up. I, I mean, I saw this as a post-modern picture. I'd be curious to see if the rest of you agree or disagree. But um, overall thoughts about the film. Let me be very modern for a second and ask that question. Like, do you think it's, this is so modern of me. Do you think this was an overall good movie? Uh, general thoughts about the film. What did you guys think about The Cabin in the Woods? General thoughts. Um, yeah, I love this film. Um, I actually remember walking out of this movie thinking to myself, oh wow, now they can never make a bad horror movie after this. And uh, of course I was wrong. Um, but it was because this film did such a great job of of getting all of the horror movie tropes and then sending them up, making fun of them. I do think this is a postmodern film. I think it's inarguably a postmodern film. I would like somebody to, I actually hope that Ben or Antonio will be able to make the argument that it isn't, and then we would be able to, uh, to, to not have a unanimous agreement on that. Um, but yeah, it's a postmodern film and it's a delightful one. It's uh, all of my problems with the film are very, I have very few problems with the film, but they're all very nitpicky. Um, it's it, it, as a, as a whole and as a structure, this uh, Joss Whedon and, and the, uh, the director Drew Goddard hit it out of the park with this one. Ben Antonio, do you guys uh, share our love of, uh, cabin in the woods. I'm, I'm hoping they're quiet because they're gonna just completely shit all over the film now. That would make me so happy. <laughs> I was actually just kind of holding out, maybe seeing if Antonio wanted to jump in with the counterpoint as far as the postmodernism is concerned, because I'm definitely not going to be able to offer that point. Um, I, I don't think it's um, even uh, almost questionable that this is uh, it intrinsically just postmodern. Um, you know, there's so much about this that really just sort of screams that attitude. Uh, even just going down to the fact that they quite literally put a spotlight on the archetypes that they're using. I mean, it's not like really about the characters themselves. It's literally about this role that they're supposed to fill. They go into the the, the order in which they're supposed to die. They make it explicitly clear that this is sort of applied across different like horror uh, movies that you could bring into this. I mean, with the monsters themselves, they have werewolves at the, at the very end. Whenever you uh, go down that elevator into that uh, that government facility, you have monsters in there that really look like um, what you can see in Hellraiser. They have the werewolves. They've got, of course, like weird mermaids. They've got ghosts. They pretty much 
you know, they, they cover the entire gamut of any like horror movie monster that you could, you could really think of and say, okay, well across all of these, the, the core commonality here is these archetypes. And the beauty of this movie, I think, is that they, <laughs> as the part of the storyline, they say, what's going to happen if we disrupt this order? And that's really the key, right? You know, you have the stoner fool guy who gets killed like you expect him to. But in the end, you know, that ends up being sort of like the, the little bit that they really sort of looked over. He doesn't actually die. You know, the fact that he was smoking weed sort of helps him out as opposed to becomes his detriment. And then that becomes the thing that overthrows the entire system when you break that meta narrative. Um, I mean, I could go on and on with points like that, but yeah, I don't even think it's a, I don't even think it's a question. And because of that, I really do enjoy this movie. Um, when I first watched it, I, my, my first reaction was that it was amazing. And I got the feeling that it was very sort of like divisive. It's like one of those things that you either really like, or you really, really hate. But, uh, as far as I'm concerned, yeah, I mean, I just like <laughs> the, the commentary of this movie is just incredible. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, let's talk for a moment about those monsters that you referenced, uh, Ben, because on the board is one of my favorite psych gags of this film, uh, the, the, the government organization, or maybe it's a government organization, maybe it's not even Is it Kevin? governmental. Kevin. Yeah, yes. Kevin. <laughs> On the board, there's a list of all the potential monsters, and one of them is just Kevin. Now, that is fucking hilarious. Now, uh, I, I, I kind of want to just see the Kevin movie. Like, what happens if they choose Kevin? Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, they have a whole list of... of uh, I mean, Killer Clowns is represented, so we've got the It uh, representation. There's a representation of the um, the villain from Hellraiser, uh, Pinhead, the Cenobites, I think they're called. Do you, do you know what he is called in the credits? What is he called in the credits? Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain. <laughs> Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain. It was a joke they threw in. That is fucking hilarious. Oh, the Easter egg, I guess it's an Easter egg of these of this film are it's it's as entertaining as the film's action itself. There's even oh my god, killer unicorns. Thank you. Like somebody please make the killer unicorn movie. Why does this why have I not seen this already? Um so yeah, I as you brought up the monsters, I had to bring up the the thing that I love about this film the most and that is uh, and that is the tiny details that they include it's almost like the monsters that they chose the redneck zombies are almost the most boring of the monsters that they could have chosen but by the end of it we get to see all of them and uh, and, and in, it's in details like that I think that the postmodernism of the film reveals itself. I think I think if if you're if we're going to classify the way in which this film is postmodern, it's postmodern because it's multivalently referential. It makes it it is it is referent to a bunch of audience expectations, to a bunch of cultural tropes. Um, and and it depends on the expectations that these the, that these tropes and cultural items generate for the the narrative power of of its of the arcs that it tries to draw. You know, the the whole reason that um, it's interesting that um, uh, yeah, Cenobites or it's co uh, it, yeah, Cenobites is is correct. Um, <laughs> anyway, so. 
so it's it's the the way that the film is the film exists the film narrative exists on multiple levels some of which aren't even inside the film but are inside the audience and the audience's expectations as as they relate to the film that's really what makes this a, a super postmodern narrative and in, in, in my estimation and i think it's actually it, it is a brilliant idea in its in its core concept and um in the way that it sort of that it sort of does an as above so below kind of thing where where it almost it shows you a horror movie being written it shows it shows you it, it from the profit it, it's it's a couple of uh you know movie screenwriters writing a horror movie that shows you what screenwriting a horror movie is like basically is is the idea it's almost got a truman show uh sort of quality to it in in that respect um where, where, and I think it really has a Truman Show quality in that respect. When you consider that the that the show that the that the uh, movie literally ends with the with the end of the story, with the destruction of everything by the ancient ones, right? And so it's it's that that world comes to an end when the writer's purpose comes to an end, exactly as as happens. It, it's it's a symbolic representation of what happens in actual in actual narrative writing. And so to that end, I actually want to ask uh, the, the other uh, folks here a question, and that is, who do you think the villain is in this movie? I think this is the most interesting question you can ask about this movie. Who is the villain in this movie, and why do you think they, are, they or it or whatever is the villain? I, I think it's, um, from my perspective, it's pretty uh, easy to be able to say that it's the old gods that are the villain. I don't even really think that the people running the show, the ones that are forcing everyone to conform to those archetypes and, you know, selecting people to come and die. I don't really see them as being bad guys per se. You know, I mean, you have uh, centers like this all across the world who are really trying to make this happen because of a, of a fear we have of the entire world ending, right? It's out of self-preservation. And if you think about the sacrifice of four people every year versus the entire world ending forever, you know, yeah, I really can't say that they're bad guys, um, but it's going to be, I think, the ones underground that are sort of forcing this to happen, that are demanding the sacrifice in the first place. It's clearly the harbinger. The harbinger is the villain. The guy at the very beginning at the gas station, he's he's the number one culprit. Um, I totally agree with uh, with Ben. I, I, I'm tempted to say the organization, but the more I think about it, you know, the more I get... Um, the sacrifice and what and what that allows us to do. It allows us to continue on. I do think that at the end of the day, the authors of all of this madness are the ones underground. They're the the. I mean, I guess they're kind of vague about the monsters, but they're the the ancient ones, the old ones. If we want to throw in some sort of connection to Lovecraft, um, yeah, I, I would say off top of my head, uh, just kind of winging it. It's the uh, the old ones. I'm going to go with. I'm going to agree with Ben. I'd also have to agree with Ben, but I wonder about the question like do we need a villain like does and does this movie have a villain um i think one of the things that i like about one of the things that i dislike about um all of the horror movies that this movie is sending up is the fact that there is a clear delineation between good and evil that in all of these and for example, Friday the 13th, Jason is clearly the bad guy uh, in, in Friday the 13th, two through 500. Um, the, Jason is clearly the bad guy. He's the villain. He's the antagonist. If we 
escape or defeat or somehow um, destroy Jason, then we'll be okay. That's a that's a very clear good evil delineation that I don't think accurately represents reality. Um, in in real life, we people aren't villains. People aren't um, clearly good or bad. And so that's why I, I, I sort of wonder at the question, does this, uh, do, does this film require a villain? And is this, does this film have a villain? Like, I'm gonna so switch that, this that one back on you. Question, and that's, and that's half, halfway to, to the point that I, that I wanna make here. So there's, there's a sense in which, when, when you look at the narrative of this movie, there's there's not really a villain in a moral sense because you don't there isn't a particular sympathy for the for the protagonist the protagonists don't don't have anything going for them especially other than just pluck and random innocence but the movie makes clear that that's not necessarily relevant and indeed when they choose to like end the world obviously that has that's a moral decision that has huge implications on other people and how you evaluate that decision of course will depend depend on your own moral code and how you frame the characters, but clearly, clearly, it wants to implicate them. Um, but, but, it, you know, the organization has is kind of benevolent in the sense that it wants to save the world, but also it's manipulating people with in an absolutely cold-blooded way, and so you can view it definitely as as villainous in that sense. You know, the the ancient ones are villainous in the sense of being the final, you know, the the thing that that's going to rip everything apart at the end, and the thing that you want to stop but they're not really villainous in the sense of having a direct impact on the movie. They just have an inevitability to them, and, and they don't have any direct um, um, connection to any of the oppositional forces in the movie. And so, and, and this brings us to part two of it, and that, is, and that is that while you may question whether or not the film has a villain in the conventional sense, for narrative purposes, there is always you know, all, all narrative is based on some form of conflict, some form of struggle. And so there is always an oppositional force, an antagonistic force in a narrative, whether or not there's a formal villain, right? There's, there's, some, there's a challenge that the heroes have to overcome in some way, shape, or form. And so what I want to argue here is that, is that the antagonist in this particular movie is not the ancient ones, it's not the organization, it's not any of the monsters, it's not any of the, the teenagers or what have you, the young people. What it is, is it's chaos. It's, it's absurdity, more, more precisely, that is the villain in this movie. Because, what, because, again, the ancient ones don't exert any direct force themselves. They don't, have any, they don't exert any direct influence themselves. They just arrive if you fail to do a particular thing, if you fail to meet a particular condition. And so what are the things that trip people up in this movie? Think, think about the moments where the narrative turns, where the, mo the, moment where people are th the moments where people are thwarted in this movie, are incredibly random seeming arbitrary seeming elements that are that are super hard to predict you know the fact that that patience the zombie just happened to walk past all those people and not get interrupted by anybody or distracted by anybody and just happened to come up at the exact wrong moment you know the fact that the that that werewolf bite just didn't actually kill her on the spot and you know what I mean? Like there's, there's so many elements in this movie where, where just on, on an arbitrary thing, on an arbitrary hinge, when, when the, when the uh, ceiling of the, of the tunnel collapses and they don't all die and the ceiling collapses at, at the same time and thus thwart, 
thwart the purpose of the of the thing when they choose when 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 at the end they have the power to make a choice to change the course of to to maintain the original intended course of events and they choose not to there the the movie at, at every element emphasizes that that be it from a natural force be it from somebody's arbitrary peak of the moment be it from just you know some unexpected random happenstance that that you couldn't have foreseen based or something that you should have foreseen but were careless about um just some some arbitrary force will come and will fuck you up will will ruin your life and there's nothing you can do about it there's nothing you can do to see it coming it will have the capacity to end the your entire world and that's just the way life is. The ultimate horror, you know, Noah said that's kind of a Lovecraftian horror. The, the ultimate Lovecraftian horror of the movie beneath the old ones, beneath the tentacles of the old ones, is that, is that the old ones can be brought forth just by, just by shit happening. That you had no ability to predict or control in any way, shape, or form. And that despite your best efforts to control it once you saw it happening, you couldn't stop. Despite your best preparedness, you couldn't stop it. It just happened. That's just the way it went down. And you can, and, and that's the horror of this particular movie. So um, let me try and tease out some of that. Um, so you're, you're arguing that chaos and... Wait, are you arguing that chaos itself is the villain or that violations of predetermined order is the villain um because i think there is a, a separation that, there what that, that chaos the arbitrary the arbitrary and unpredictable the ultimately arbitrary and unpredictable nature of the universe you know as you know and and the reason i the reason i think this is there are a tremendous amount of threads that you see in cabin in the woods that run through previous joss whedon works and one of the, and and Joss Whedon kind of evokes a lot of his philosophy in a lot of his works as well. And Joss Whedon has explicitly identified himself as an absurdist. And if you read Joss Whedon's works in an absurdist if, in an absurdist framing, you see this come out very very strongly. I think. And I think Cabin in the Woods is is one of the most blatant examples of Joss Whedon framing a story in absurdist terms, in terms of where everything is ultimately meaningless and arbitrary, and the only thing that actually ha creates meaning is just the act of filling that space by being for as long as you be. I can buy that. I like that. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead Ben. So I was just going to say, I would ask then to kind of throw that back to Antonio a little bit. So uh, obviously we're characterizing this as being postmodern and a big part of what postmodern is, is taking kind of like our, our known meta narrative and twisting it in weird ways and changing it and like doing unexpected things to it. So would you say that that sort of chaos and absurdity is sort of the driving force behind all kind of like postmodern works? And in this context, of course, we're talking about a horror film. And so it's easy to kind of like, to bring that back to something that's sort of deeply terrifying because, you know, I definitely get that, you know, especially thinking about why Lovecraft is scary, that that concept in and of itself, that we have an utter lack of control. That's just an apple skin, you know, distance away from completely breaking through, you know, would you say that that's a common thread between all postmodern work? I think that the ultimate unintelligibility of reality, the idea that the idea that all the idea that all notions of reality are constructions and that there is no one intelligible layer of reality that that conscious minds can 
experience in the same way no matter what. I think that would be a postmodern idea. Um, I don't know how far I would expand it beyond that, but certainly I would say at least at least that much, at least that idea that 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 truth is a construction no matter how you want to put it, and that reality ultimately is beyond anything that you can construct as a truth. That that a, a construction of a truth is all is never actually going to to exactly map to reality. I think that certainly is a is a postmodern notion that you do see expressed in this movie. And picking, you know that obviously is a current that runs through postmodern work generally. Picking up on that, postmodernists also argue that stories have an inability to, as you say, mesh with with reality and the fact that this film deliberately uh, throws a wrench in, and makes fun of, throws a wrench into and makes fun of horror movie genres and, and particular um, ideas that we have about what a horror film should be and how the, the morality of a horror film is bullshit and, and innately and, and overly constructed. And then in this film, of course, undermined. I think that fits in with a lot of what you're saying as well. Yeah, the movie definitely emphasizes that the stories that we tell are lies, <laughs> and that um, and and possibly dangerous ones at that, and that um, any story you tell, you don't actually control ultimately. That you that you're always one i one iota away from losing control over the story that you're trying to create. Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things I, I dug about the film is that it uses a postmodern tool, a kind of a postmodern parody. Um, earlier in this, uh, I think it was Ben had said um, something about the care, making comment about the characters, like for example, the fool surviving. If you think of how deep this goes in the film, right? Like to get into the characters, you have Jules, the the dumb blonde, who is only blonde because she just dyed her hair, and she's pre med, so she's not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they threw that in there on purpose. You have, um, you know, you have the jock who's a chemistry. Guy. You have the fool who seems sociology. to be the only uh, sociology. I'm sorry, and then you have the fool who um, seems to be the only one getting it at certain points because of the reefer, right? Like he's what we need to split up. What are you? The hell's happening? Right? He's the smartest guy there, right? He's the smartest guy in the room, and and that puts an emphasis, I think, on the banality of sort of uh, the the characters in horror films, fitting them into certain. Uh, tropes and and not really relying on 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 the characters themselves, but how they function. And a, a really good scene in this film that characterizes this. One of the scenes that has never left me is the scene when they think that Dana has died. Um, one of the two guys, I actually forget their names. Um, one of the two uh, uh, controllers. Um, and she's on the dock. Dana's on the dock, right? And the the redneck zombies beating her up, and it looks like it's over. And and the film, you you think in the film that, that the movie's sort of over, and he's looking at her, and the camera pans in on him. And he says something like, um, God, I almost, like I almost, I'm almost rooting for her, right? And it's this like sort of quick emotional thing. And he goes, tequila is my lady, right? And it's that like jumping out that like you're in it, but no, it doesn't really matter, right? It's that kind of everything is surface level. Everything, um, you know, it, it, it it's a, almost a, 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 a a crisis of structure, right? It's like everything sort of, it's, there's no real, you're not meant to go in to this film liking or caring or thinking about the characters you're meant to go into it looking at how they function right it's kind of a, a a removal of of structure a tearing down of those things by way of parody and that is a tool of postmodern of, of uh, postmodernity um 
So I, I really dug that. By the way, going back to the question that was asked originally about who the villain is here, we have like a bunch of people in our chat tonight, all kind of saying the same thing. So I'll throw this out there as a question. Um, and this may sound a little hokey. What, what about us? Or maybe we're the villain. Maybe we're the gods. We're the ones that view and observe and reach our hand up when we don't like something. We're the ones that have to. I mean, I, I, actually, now that I think about it, uh, what's there? Isn't there a scene in this where one of the two uh, fellows who's also doing all the controls says something like, "Show us the boobs" or something like, "Show your boobs" or something. We're not the only ones watching, right? And it's like the idea is like you have to. There's a formula. You, we got to see. We got to see tits in a horror film, right? The audience has got to get what they want, right? That sort of thing. Uh, so maybe there's something to that. I don't know. Yeah, I thought about that when Antonio first asked his question, uh, who the villain was, and whether or not we or or the horror movie genre was was the villain in this. Um, and I think there's a lot to that, uh, especially considering that this is a genre that has that has been financially successful, and as a result of its financial success, has has continued to um, perpetuate the same tropes and the same, in many cases, bullshit movies that that fit into these tropes. And so the idea that we as consumers who are happily devouring uh, these films, um, whether or not we are the ones who who are villains, I kind of like that as an answer. I. I um, obviously, I don't know that that was what t Antonio was going for, but I'd sort of be curious what you have to say about that. Do you think we're, in some cases, the villains, Antonio? Um, I definitely see how the film sets that up, you know, in saying that, you know, the, the we're in sort of suggesting that we want, are the ones who want to see these people die on screen. And once once we have seen them all die and their blood has, you know, come up, then then we're all satisfied. And, you know, when, when we see that somebody hasn't died, then all of a sudden, oh, nope. Um, at the same time, the the I feel like the the way that they emphasize archetypes within the within the movie, you know, in a, in a really direct way is while it's a commentary on audiences and the way the audiences react, um, I feel like it's a little bit more structured and ritualistic and thus that the that the point that it's trying to make is it's trying to more tell us a story about stories than cast us in the story itself. If that makes sense. Well, that I actually have a, oh, sorry. You first. Okay, I actually had a question about that. And, um, I'm kind of wondering about this too, because I know we said that a, that parody is sort of a tool of postmodernism. And we're talking about sort of the point that the movie is making through, through what it's doing here. But uh, I'm not entirely sold on the fact that it is parody per se. So I'm trying to make the distinction here between satire, parody, and pastiche. Whereas satire might be like sort of a copying of something to offer a criticism, parody might just be to make some kind of a point that isn't really necessary a necessarily a criticism, but you know you are offering some kind of commentary. And whereas pastiche would just be more of like kind of like a playful nod, or like maybe even just mimicking for the sake of mimicking, but then adding your own unique twist to it. And uh, I haven't really settled on an answer here because I'm not entirely sure what sort of like the overall message is to take away from this. Um, but yeah, um, what do you guys think? Like, which which one does it sound more like to you that this would sort of fall into based on based on what you're saying? Um, I was I was of the opinion that it was satire. I mean, I was almost once again. We I go back to the the thought that I had when I 
first walked out of this movie, I saw it in the theaters, um, you know, in, in 2012 when it came out. And my first thought was they could never make a bad horror movie because of this. Joss Whedon had just burned down the house and now it was up to horror movies uh, and horror film directors to find something new. Um, that was that was my reaction to it, but that's also because I had been sort of cheerleading the burning down of bad horror movies for a long time. I I'd been hoping that we'd stop making shitty horror movies and and get get to something good, um, and so the idea that Whedon had burned down the house was the thing that I had celebrated. Now, obviously, uh, with with five years hindsight, um, we still have our Annabelles running around and uh, our Bye Bye Mans and all the other really just shitty brainless horror films. Oh, what was the film? with the blinds guy and the four, three people go in there and that movie sucks. Oh yeah. Balls. I think Whatever that was that Hush. Was good. Yeah, not, sure. No, 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 that wasn't Hush. Hush is the deaf, uh, the deaf girl in the cabin. I know what you're talking about. This is where the, they try to rob the blind guy. Yeah, what the right. fuck is that called? Uh, I, I couldn't stand it, and I watched it because it had high ratings on Rotten Tomatoes. Anyway, that movie angered me. I'm sorry, continue. Yeah, I, but that's, I, it sort of speaks to the point, right? Um, that's a film that kind of follows a similar territory. It, it kind of follows the, the horror movie tropes that Whedon is, I think, satirizing and, and hoping, to, hoping to draw attention to the fact that these films don't make any sense, um, that they fit a particular formula, and that they simply, in many cases, that they have become such a copy of themselves that they don't work anymore. Um, and... I, you know, so I would. I'm in the satire camp. Uh, I I don't know about the rest of you then. Yeah, I mean, I I am going to be completely honest with you. I I just didn't think about it that much. I used the word parody, but uh, satire seems to to definitely make more sense. And going back to the kind of, um, the the satire of mechanism in horror films. Do you guys, the scene well, this always cracks me up every time. The scene where the cellar door just fucking flies open for no reason. One of my favorite scenes, right? It's just, oh, let's go down there. Let's go down there, right? I mean, how many how many horror films have you seen where that kind of shit, you're just like, why? Like, what are you doing, right? Scream parodied the same sort of thing. Uh, and I think there's another scene where they they electrify her weapon, right? And this is a trope in horror films, a, 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 an actual trope. Um, we'll, go, we'll maybe go through the, all the tropes in this film. I listed all of them. But there's a trope in horror films where the protagonist drops the weapon for some... Unbelievably ridiculous reason that makes no sense, right? As a way to just function in terms of the 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 film, uh, and there's a scene in this where they like totally uh, satirize that, where they electrify her knife and she drops it and doesn't even notice. Um, I don't, I didn't remember that till this last viewing. I, I had no idea that that happened. I was like, what? Um, so I think it goes back to just kind of um, satirizing the very structure and mechanics of uh, of of modern horror films, um, and in fact, so much so that. Um, there were movie posters, I don't know if you guys know this for this movie, um, that said things like this. It said on the on the posters, if you hear a sound outside, have sex. That's one of the movie posters. If you hear, yeah, don't breathe. That's the movie we were talking about, Jim. Uh, if you hear a sound outside, have sex. Uh, another one, if something is chasing you, split up, right? Like, fucking brilliant. Like, absolutely brilliant. Um, anyway, anyway. Um, you know, there's something about like selecting from a catalog of nightmares, like at the end of this film, that is it is itself a kind of commentary. Um, 
uh, go, go through all the, the list of monsters, but really quickly, um, Let's let's go over to the tropes in this movie. Like, there's probably ten of them. Really quickly, that they they poke fun at um, the abandoned cabin, and this is taken from TVTropes.org for this film, right? So someone collected all of the tropes that's in the cabin in the woods. The first one is the abandoned cabin. Um, the second one is the harbinger, right? Clearly, uh, the creepy basement, uh, creepy children, dangerous windows, right? Where Marty's actually like taken through the window, um, but he's actually the victor of that skirmish. So they reverse that, which is really interesting. Death by sex. Uh, dropping the weapon, which I just went over. Dumb blondes, dumb jocks. Uh, there's a final girl, right? Um, which, by the way, one of the it, that that term was coined in one of the books that we're eventually going to get to. Garrett's going to kill me that we haven't gotten to it at this point. It was first coined in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, um, which is uh, one of one of the books we're going to get to in review. Uh, the jump scare, ominous music box tune, uh, summoning artifacts. Uh, surprisingly sudden death and then a torture cellar. Those are all of the tropes. I can't think of any more than those. So those are all the tropes in this movie. Well, yeah. and go ahead, Jim. No, you, uh, I was just going to pick off no pick up off of Noah's point. What's uh, what's really great about this is when that cellar door flies open. Uh, the dumb jock Chris Hemsworth character says. Uh, that must have been the wind. And Marty says, yeah, like that makes sense. And that kind of, that, you know, Marty sort of uh, works as the, the Scream character, the Matthew Lillard character in, the, in Scream. I believe it's Matthew Lillard who, who kept poking fun at all of the horror movie genre tropes that, that get played in Scream. And Marty kind of works as that in our, um, in this film. And I think it, it, says something that he's the one who's immune to it. What is more, I think what's interesting about this is how Marty keeps reminding us that these characters, um, as they're going to the cabin in the woods, they keep acting out of their own personalities. When did, uh, when did uh, Chris Hemsworth's character, whatever his name is, Carl, Cody, something like that. When did he become such an alpha male? He's a sociology major. Those, the idea that this keeps getting hammered into us, that these people aren't these archetypes, I think is a really interesting, uh, it, it, it positions the film as making fun of itself and making fun of other horror films, so. Go ahead, Antonio. Well, uh, yeah, the, the basic commentary there, of course, is that is that it's it, it is evidence that the narrative is something that we impose. It's a structure that we impose on reality and not something that emerges from reality in an organic kind of way. Um, and that's honestly, honestly, where I feel the movie's weakest. So if we can turn to criticisms of the movie now, right? So um, where, where I feel the movie is weakest is that it kind of, it's kind of suffers from a lack of its own, a lack of courage of its own convictions. Like for example, there's a, there's a moment in the movie where, you know, they put the board up on all the bets. And if you pause uh, and look at all the bets that people placed on various different monsters, you know, again, like they have Kevin and they have the unicorn and, you know, merman and the zombies versus the, uh, the uh, zombie uh, torture family, and uh, but but if you read a lot of those, a lot of those are really are really pretty interesting. Uh, a lot of those are really pretty interesting monsters. And when you see the monsters, some of the other monsters they could have come up against in the uh, 
in the elevator. A lot of those are some some pretty interesting looking monsters. And they went with some fairly generic, like you know, zombies. Like the most the most interesting thing about the zombies was that that there was that guy who had a bear trap on a chain. Like that was the that was the that was the cool thing about the zombies. And you know, this is yes, you do get to see the merman at the end, and you get to see a tentacle snatch somebody, and some other some other you know nice moments later, much later on in the film. But as far as what they kind of hang the main or the, at least the initial narrative structure around. It would have been interesting to see them, uh, you know, take one of the much more uh, com potentially compelling things on that board instead of going with something as generic as, you know, zombie torture family. And and I understand they were probably trying to emphasize that it was sort of a generic plot, you know, for the purpose of sort of highlighting the postmodern elements of the narrative. But at the same time, I still think that you could have been a little bit more creative there. The other thing that I didn't like about the film is that this is a film that emphasizes the ways in which um, reality doesn't doesn't exactly um, it, it emphasizes the idea the idea that of of rules, right? The idea that that you know the horror movies are sets of rules that we try to conform to, and and that you know non conformity results in the narrative spiraling out of control or, or weakening in some sort of sometimes very material sense. And the problem with the movie is that is that for as smart of a concept as that is, it's a really dumb movie when in terms of a lot of its writing decisions. You know, in terms of in terms of um, making a movie that obeys the rules that itself lays forth, uh, it's not a very, it's not a great movie. You know, like for example, one of the things that I emphasized was exactly, you know, they cave that they cave the thing in when there are still several sequenced deaths that need to occur. So, you know, thus risking that they could simultaneously uh, kill all of them and therefore usher in the apocalypse. And that that doesn't make any sense within the narrative framework which they've given us to work with. And so, those that that's 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 I I put I, I take a very high standard when I'm evaluating something that is this smart in its conception and executed by a veteran like Joss Whedon. And so it, it was very kind of disappointing to me to watch the movie and see so many elements of the movie that were, that were, you know, the sort of things that you could put up on cinema sins, right. That were the, the kind of dumb, you know, sort of continuity errors that you could, that you could really with a, with a tiny bit more polish on the script, just totally buff out and make much more consistent and thus emphasize the message of the film much more rather than saying, wait, why are they caving everything in right now? How does that make any sense? So that so, was a mistake. That was supposed to be, the, the cave was supposed to collapse before they even got to the, like there's a whole thing where Richard Jenkins is running through the entire underground area so that he can cave that thing in and the reason that the, that uh that pass wasn't caved in before then was there was a certain order with which the people had to die and the director knew that the fool had yet to die and that's yep. why yep. the director art made sure that that cave had not collapsed in, in on itself before so cinemasins actually did do a uh a yep. video on this, um, and and I don't know if they actually send that part, but I yeah. So I I don't know if that sort of speaks to your criticism, Antonio, or can you because that that particular scene makes sense within the narrative of the film. 
Well, it, it, it makes sense that the cave wasn't collapsed within the narrative of the film, but that, that the solution that they immediately rush to is to collapse the cave and thus risk the entire experiment. In other words, I guess, I guess maybe if you want to frame it, if you want to frame it as those were their only two options and it was either let them escape or take a coin flip on whether they survived the cave in then I guess maybe you can frame it in those terms. But that seems to me to kind of strain the terms of the film. When we, later in the film, we see that they have like squads of heavily armed commandos that are like ready to go on like a five minute notice, right? And so what's, how, how, how difficult would it have been for them to arrange that the, or, or, or and, and now you have to take a, a step back and look at it from a screenwriting perspective. They decided to make it that the cave would cave in and that they would be zooming out of the cave with the cave collapsing on them, et cetera, et cetera. The, Joss Whedon wrote it that way. He could just as easily have written it that as they're zooming up toward the tunnel, it blows and collapses, and then they screech to a halt in front of the tunnel, right? Which then completely prevents the criticism of what would have happened if the cave had actually collapsed on them. You know what I mean? This is something that you could have that you could have foreseen and written around in a in a pretty elementary way, just by you know throwing this on a, on a table with you know five English majors and going, all right, what are, what what seems strikes to you as inconsistent in the script? What are people going to pick at? You know, and that that it didn't do that is, I think, a criticism of the film, a weakness of the film, given how intelligently it's conceived otherwise. I think Richard Jenkins's character didn't know that the fool was still alive, and that's why he was. Uh, that's why he he did that. I he should have known. He should have known. You want to know why? Something happens when the, they hit the thing, and the fool, the blood comes down for the fool. Do you know what happens when he does that? That doesn't happen when anyone else dies. Everything shakes. The gods right. are pissed because they know, and they should have known that. So that maybe maybe goes to Antonio's point. Maybe. I, I mean, I've got my own sort of picky, cinema uh, uh problems with the film, but I, this is one that I'm not, I'm not fully on board with. Yes, I think he should, he should have known, but I also understand why he didn't react to that and go, oh, well, the gods are clearly pissed. Um, I, that, it makes sense to me that that wasn't a, sure, a light sure. bulb going off. Yeah, and and I don't want to fixate on that. Like, there's all kinds of elements in the film that one could criticize in that in that form. For example, the other the other big element that I thought struck me as straining writing credulity was the suggestion gas, the let's split up gas. I mean, come on, man, you couldn't you you couldn't have screenwritten a more plausible way to make them split up instead of sticking together. Like, you couldn't have made like the, a bunch of different spots in the room erupt in flames and thus force everyone to split up into different into different exits. You know what I mean? Like, it's so easy to think of something that is that that is less laughable than okay, they release a mist into the air that makes Chris Hemsworth suddenly suggest that everyone split up. You know what I mean? And if they have that kind of granular control, it also robs the narrative of a lot of its power because a lot of the elements in the narrative that are powerful are precisely that there are these sort of arbitrary elements or these elements of whim and peak that that set the that, that set the narrative off. And when when you give them that much power and then sort of arbitrarily say, okay, well, they can they can literally put a suggestion gas such that Chris Hemsworth goes, let's split up right after he says, let's not split up. 
but for some reason we have to collapse a tunnel to prevent them from escaping. We can't just say, oh, just release the suggestion gas that makes him decide to turn around. You know what I mean? Like it, there's, it, it does rob the, the narrative of a lot of its power to, to use these kinds of, of strained um, elements in telling it. Well, hold on. Actually, that I don't think that was strange at all with the gas. I think that was that totally made sense in the in the uh, context of the narrative, particularly because it allows our our stoner degenerate to say that doesn't make sense. And I think that's a really critical part of the movie is having that guy in there that says, "Wait a minute, this is really weird. Why are you doing this?" And if the if if the mechanism by which they split up had made sense, then that kind of wouldn't have worked as well, and they wouldn't have been able to highlight sort of that that twist in the storyline. I, I agree with Antonio in the sense that the suggestion gas does make the uh, Hadley and, uh, well, Richard Jenkins and Bradley uh, Whitford's character um, make them much more powerful than they show themselves to be at other points in the narrative. And that in that type of inconsistency, I see Antonio's point. At the same time, so one of the, uh, I'll use this to get to a few of my, my criticisms. Um, for example, if I were designing an underground lab with a bunch of horror movie monsters, the last thing that I would install would be an all, hell, all things go to hell button. I wouldn't even install that button. Like that wouldn't, like if the, if the, the purge button. Right. Like if I got that, like that underground lab as a piece of Ikea furniture and I had to put it all together, that is one part that I would leave in the box. And so the idea that that button exists to me is a, a to quote CinemaSense, that's a sin for me like having suggestion gas, like other aspects that I might quibble with Antonio about. But I think as I'm sort of thinking about my own criticisms, that button leads to one of the greatest shots in the entire fucking movie. The elevator doors dinging and then all hell breaking loose is one of the greatest things I've seen in cinema in such a long time. And so it seems to me that as a writer, if I have the choice between doing something that maybe, maybe strains a little bit of credulity, but it pays off in something incredible, then I'm going to go ahead and do the thing that strains uh, a little bit of credulity. So the button strains credulity, but it pays off. The suggestion gas strains credulity, but it does pay off. And wait, that's a really stupid idea, or the, the line that Marty has there. Um, and I think that that's, as I'm thinking about this film and criticizing it and picking it, also, why the fuck do they drive an RV to a cabin in the woods? An RV is the cabin. You, you drive a car to the cabin in the woods. Why would you drive an RV there? Um, once again, that's just, it. it's a thing that strains credulity, but I, although the RV doesn't really pay off all that much. So anyway, if, if I could, uh, I just, before we get uh, too far away from this, I wanted to go back to what uh, Antonio said about the villains that they choose to use and how arbitrary and sort of boring they seem. 
Um, honestly, I really feel like that's one of the uh, the strengths of this movie. And to go into one of the criticisms I have, I'm really glad that they didn't pick a monster that sort of overshadows their ability to make the focus really all about the structure of the characters and the relationships and kind of like the weird stuff going on in the narrative and all that sort of like high level stuff. If they had, if they had a memorable villain, and this is probably the only time that I will ever say this ever, ever, ever in any movie that I watch, I'm glad the villain kind of sucked. Um, because I, I, you know, yeah, I'm a huge fan of like a really good bad guy. In this case, the traditional bad guy that would have sort of fit into their horror movie narrative, it needed to be really bland. And I'm super glad about that. The one criticism that I would have is that I'm actually a little bit upset that the final monster or whatever, like the, the, you know, at the very end, whenever the, um, the old ones or whatever, the, you see the hand breaking up. That's an amazing scene. I love that. But I'm kind of pissed that those entities had a will and that they were demanding sacrifice. Now, I would have really been a little more pleased, I think, if that had been out, um, if that had been written out, like if, if it was just more random and more chaotic, as kind of like you were mentioning earlier. Um, you know, the fact that they were somewhat memorable and had kind of like this driving force, I think, was actually a weaker point. I wish that had been a little bit more toned down. So uh, a couple things. Uh, one about the RV. Uh, Shara mentioned in chat that the RV is a shout out to the Hills Have Eyes, uh, which is why they added it. Uh, so that makes sense. Uh, uh, my criticism. You guys have the most intelligent criticisms of this movie. I'm going to give you mine, and I'm glad I'm going last. Um, and it's a legit criticism. The scene where um, Jules is making out with the wolf. Um, my main criticism is that that didn't last 30 seconds longer. That would have. That would have made the movie so much better for me. It's my main criticism of the movie. Um, one of the things I wanted to mention is, um, <clears throat> and I thought about this on my last viewing of this film, it didn't dawn on me, but the fact that all the other nations successfully destroy the monster and the US doesn't, that struck me as maybe, and this could just be me reaching, and it probably is, a kind um, of criticism of American horror, of, of, of our genre. I mean, it, it seems that, especially during the time that Cabin in the Woods was made, foreign horror films and we can uh, some of them that we've actually reviewed we're knocking it out of the park right and american horror films just sort of eh, just sort of formulaic same sort of shit so i don't know if it, it it struck me as the as possibly being a criticism to the american genre american horror i'd like that except that the it shows that the other um countries failed so they yeah, they failed by successfully defeating the monster. Oh right? right, okay, the monster that the the people had chosen. Okay, yeah, I thought you were saying that they they successfully defeated the gods, which which didn't. No, happen. but yeah, no. yeah, that, would, able that to, would change the shit out of this film. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the Japanese. Uh, how how fucking difficult is it to kill nine year olds? Another great line in this movie <laughs> where they're able to put the uh, the spirit into the frog. Um, but okay, yeah, that no, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so what else did I, I want to add here? Um, so uh, the practical effects in this movie, it, it, I felt that this film cinematically did a great job of combining good CG with good practical effects. There were a lot of practical effect ho uh, horror sequences in this, specifically during the scene with the elevator, but there was also a lot of CG, and I thought it was a beautiful mixture of the two. One of the main criticisms that we have in a lot of our podcasts here about films is after a certain point, it's almost like, post 98, 99, like post event horizon, um, practical effects just turn to shit, right? And so it's, it, you, you can think of maybe a handful after that are good, 
that do practical effects well. I was really surprised by this movie. It did it did CG fairly well, but it did really good practical effects. Um, and I got to agree. I, I just want to throw this out here. The scene where the the elevator dings and all the monsters come out. I will never forget that when I was in the theater. I actually thought the movie was ending at the scene that I spoke about earlier where it's the final girl sequence. I got I got totally had by this movie. I got final girls because when Dana is out there and she's about to die on the dock, I'm like, okay, like what next? Like, where am I going? Like, what are we gonna do? You know, I'm thinking it's gonna be over in the next 10 minutes, which is what I was supposed to believe, right? And when that scene happened, I was like, it got, it went from being a very curious, good horror film to a whole nother fucking level. Legitimately one of the best moments I've ever had watching a horror film in 33 years. Um, it, one of the most enjoyable moments, right? We've been analyzing a lot of the post-modernity and all that, but in terms of enjoyment, one of the most raw, enjoyable experiences I had in a horror film. Probably second only to watching Jules make out with the wolf. Probably. Probably. So... I, yeah, dude, that scene, um, like right there, I, I, it, it was absolutely perfect. Um, it just, it just sort of escalates into like this, just this, this exploding balloon of absurdity. And I really feel like they did a good job of that. And I think they made it easy to connect to, um, where if, if they had gone like a little more abstract with it, maybe the, the film would have like missed and maybe it wouldn't have been like successful at the box office or something. But honestly, if I would have changed anything about this really, like I would have like, I would have liked to, it's that to have seen it explode kind of like um, uh, mother did like where it just gets to a point where it's just unrecognizable and just completely ridiculous. You know, if we were going to completely destroy the narrative, that's where that should happen. Like it should be fairly normal. You should see kind of what's going on up to that point, And then it just loses its mind. Um, and they did a really good job of that. But yeah, maybe just a little more would have been nice. So, uh, so I have uh, really quickly some some list of fun facts uh, that I stole from uh, the interwebs about this movie that I think would be interested to see how many of these you guys know. Um, the movie's uh, opening where it shows the organization folks do, talking about their day-to-day, -day, very banal conversations about like cabinets and shit. That entire sequence, it was like three minutes, was purposefully made by Goddard and Whedon to confuse the audience and make them think that they walked into the wrong film. It was entirely made for that. The entire script was uh, written in three days, which I think itself is maybe one of the biggest fucking criticisms of horror as a genre that they could do this in three days, right? Amazing. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis was considered for the role of the director, but it ultimately went to Sigourney Weaver. That's interesting. I would, I probably would have liked to have Jamie Lee Curtis on there. Yeah, who would have you preferred? I like yeah. Sigourney Weaver. I think Sigourney she's... Weaver was good. Yeah, she was good. I, maybe putting Curtis in it would have been a little too. You know, I've been a little too much. I don't know. They've both been final girls in horror films. So yeah. that's why I, I, I like the Sigourney Weaver touch. Yeah, like to put the screen, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is the scream queen, right? Like to put her in it would maybe be giving us a little too much. The, criti the sort of postmodern criticisms and satire would maybe, maybe have been um, sullied, like removed a little bit, given that they're bringing in an actual scream queen from Halloween. And we've been talking about tropes to which Halloween is completely... Um, under the uh, is completely on the radar for so yeah I, I kind of like that I like that they put in Sigourney Weaver it would have made a would have made too much sense to put in Jamie Lee Curtis I guess um, uh, the song that's playing at the office celebration party is "Roll with the Changes" by Ario uh, Ario Speedwagon um, so that's interesting I didn't know that uh, da, 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 what else um, oh and also to go with uh, what Jim was saying um, Whedon intended this film to revitalize uh, horror genre. So my question, I guess, would be, and I think Jim has already answered this, uh, was that was that a successful endeavor? Did Whedon, by creating this film, revitalize the horror genre? So post-2012, 
did this make a make an impact? What do we think? I'm gonna say fuck no because we're all idiots. That's what I'm gonna say. That's my answer. Yep, exactly. I think the movie was probably just a little bit too smart to connect that well with the the public at large. Like, I mean, it, it's um, analogically okay if we're going back to satire and this is a commentary and a criticism about the horror genre at large. And maybe the end of the movie is kind of that that analogy of tearing that down. You know, society needs to crumble and we need to let it. Well, what they're really talking about is that sort of structure that we forced horror movies to be in for so long. Yeah, that does need to crumble. But I just don't think people got it. <laughs> and like I was talking about earlier, how like some people really enjoy this film and a lot of people just really hate it. And it's very bifurcated in that way. Um, I kind of think that was why. But I don't necessarily think you could make the point that Joss Whedon was making without having it kind of like this higher level. So I'm not sure how a person could make it succeed in that goal, right? Because, I mean, you have to have it at a level that everyone can really understand it, but it also has to really like have this commentary about those meta narratives. Um, but yeah, dude, like I just don't think it delivered on that promise. Yeah, people have to care. People have to care about the the, the criticism. You know, I don't think that I don't think that's happening in horror right now. I think mean, I, most of the horror films I hate came out. A lot of them came out after this movie. You know. Well, I think it. They're, they're it making goes... another Star Wars trilogy. Like there, there is no like quality in movies. There is no consideration of quality in movies anymore. Nothing is sacred. Exist as a factor. It's it's all it's all. Can you bank it to an international audience for five hundred million dollars gross or not? Like that's pretty much that's pretty much the consideration in top. Uh, top movie making these days. Zero, zero consideration to originality or quality. Well, I'm sort of excited about the new Star Wars movie if Ryan Johnson is behind it, but they're making a new, they're making a Bumblebee Transformers movie. So that goes to your point. Uh, God is and, dead. Uh, God is for, dead. Uh, yeah, I mean, sort of, uh, a lot of this falls on us as the consumer. If we continue to support movies that are dumb and uh, follow the same types of tropes that Whedon is satirizing, paradising, pastiching, uh, however you want to say it. If we want to continue to support those films financially, then we will continue to get those films in the marketplace. Instead, we should support the films like Get Out, which is probably going to be one of the most profitable movies of 2017. It was made for five million and it gross it's it's almost up to like half a billion it's an it's an amazing uh financial success and hopefully that is going to mean something as horror as the genre goes further um we've had intelligent and and interesting horror films since 2012 and we've had a bunch of shit too um it all depends upon us as film goers to to support the things that are that are appropriate for our attention. Um, and uh, I think that if we choose to continue to go see films like Don't Breathe, Bye Bye Man, etc. Annabelle, oh, fuck Annabelle. Um, and if we continue to support those kinds of films, then we're going to continue to get those kinds of films. Um, and... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Antonio's on the right track when he talks about the economics of of movie making and the economics of originality, but that economics falls on us. Um, in that sense, it sort of does go back to the earlier question, are we the villain? And we are the villain every time we pay tickets to see 
fucking Annabelle. So, so to that end, Jim, let me suggest that the, that, and, and I think that Joss Whedon's narrative largely agrees with you in this movie, you know, that, but, but to that end, let me suggest that the ending is incorrectly written in that case, because the way it should go is it should be that at the end, um, the ritual is fulfilled at the last she goes, oh, okay, yes, I, I will shoot him. And she shoots him and then the ritual is fulfilled. All the blood goes down, but then it turns out that that is actually what was needed to summon the ancient ones. And then the irony is that where, that where he said that where um, it was said earlier, you know, maybe the world's not worth saving if this is the price, then she kills him. And then the world ends because it wasn't worth saving. <laughs> And 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 that's and that's the kind and, and the reason why that why it's a better ending is because by fulfilling all the tropes that the audience expected, you ended up killing everything that was that was worth it about this world. I I really like that as a twist, and I kind of I would like that if that were how the film ended. Uh, but then I I envision an alternate dimension podcast where you and I are sitting down saying the ending didn't make any sense from a CinemaSins point of view. It didn't follow its, its narrative, its own narrative logic. Uh, I, I sort of wish that there was a really clever way to work in your ending and still follow the narrative logic of the film. Uh, the, but the answer is clearly to have Kevin reach out his hand at the end and just him to do it. Um, we have a we have a we have a question for the panel. Um, would you have cho um, cameras over here? Would you have chosen temporary survival or to save the world? So if you were in that situation with uh, Marty and Dana, um, and the rules were you know laid out like they were in the film, so the assumption is that if you're Dana and you kill Marty, you save the world. Um, would you have done that? Yes or no? And I'm going to answer last, so I want to know what you guys think. I say 100% yes. You know, the, okay. from, from where I'm sitting, the world, the world is a sanguinary place. Um, and, you know, just like, just like I need to destroy a lot of different life forms in order to maintain my existence for X amount of time, it is entirely conceivable to me that there is some order to the world that demands a certain amount of people in an arbitrary way that I'm incapable of interfering with or what whatnot. And yes, there is a horrific element to life if that's what it requires. But it seems to me that that is probably what it requires in some way, shape, or form, whether whether you want to uh, personalize the force or not. And so it seems to me that that you know, in that situation, would I want to continue living? Would I want other people to continue being able to exist, even knowing that this is kind of the horrific baseline element? Yes, I think I think the the answer of the existentially courageous individual is to say, you know, um, this you know, ex existence is horrific. And I accept it. There's certainly a lot to that point, Antonio, and I, I guess I, I guess I have to agree with you. Um, that said, if not shooting Marty means that I get to end bad horror movies, <laughs> thinking about this from a post-structuralist point of view, if that's the case, then. I will, uh, I will not shoot Marty and get stoned with him at the end. 
but yeah, I mean, if this, like, if, if I'm within the narrative logic of this film and it's up to me to shoot Marty or not shoot Marty, uh, Antonio makes a compelling argument for shooting Marty. Um, so, yeah. Damn it. Okay. I think it really probably depends. Um, if I'm the one holding the gun and I have to kill him, you know, a classic trolley problem, right? You know, you've got the entire world to save and you've got one person to sacrifice. I think the correct answer is probably yes. Um, but let's let's change that a little bit. Let's say that I'm I'm him. Let's say that I'm Marty. Am I willing to sacrifice myself? Or am I going to launch into some sort of like justification where, you know, why do I need to die and that sort of thing? Um, yeah, I mean, we have Antonio over here who's going to be, you know, the world savior. Um, he he would shoot Jesus. you in three seconds. You'd be so dead. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like would a, smoke your joint too. Like, an average human being would probably sit there and say, well, maybe they won't kill everybody. You know, maybe I can, maybe we just get to live in like a crazy post-apocalyptic world now and it's going to be like zombie land or whatever. You know, I don't know. Um, man, I really think it depends. I don't know. That's kind of my answer too. My answer is that it depends. However, there's a, a specific caveat for this. It depends on how much I drink. Uh, I tend to become a little nihilistic. So if I uh, if I have sh had a few beers, a couple of glasses of whiskey, uh, it's time for the end of the world. Literally, this is, goes back to the chaos that Antonio was talking about. If Noah was in this film, the chaos would be. It entirely depends on on the amount of alcohol consumed three hours before. You know, um, otherwise that utility utility awesome. kicks in. That, that <laughs> awesome thing to work into the movie where where somebody says you know oh, i get just a little tetchy when i've had a couple drinks and blah 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 and then you know and then he, <laughs> then he has a drink and then he has another drink you know benignly during the course of the movie and then all of a sudden world impacting decision thrust upon him and he goes mm, nah <laughs> you know that would be that would be epic i would have loved to see that worked into the and movie. you can kind of see idea. how that yeah you can kind of see how that would have worked in this film too you know that would have been great um where yeah. was the suggestion gas when they needed it <laughs> uh yeah that that ending scene was 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 fairly was fairly nihilistic i think what, what does marty say it was like ancient ancient evil gods he was and it, like one of the last lines is like it would have been would have been cool to see them you know it's like it's a hell of a way to go out, it's just smoking a reefer and, and just and just contemplating everyone's everyone's death on the planet. That was your decision. Crazy. Anything else you guys want to add about this film? Um, yeah, one one thing that I thought was really interesting, uh, relating to previous Deadly Analysis podcasts, is although it's not a postmodern narrative, have you noticed that the basic plot of the movie is identical to that of the Witcher or the Wicker Man? Oh yeah, this was brought up uh, in the chat, and I I, uh, I didn't mention it. I think it was Shera, I, and it was uh, a specific scene actually, Antonio. I think it was the uh, the dance, the um, oh god, like the blonde nubile dance or some shit that was in the Wicker Man. I think that was brought up. That was brought up a couple times in chat, so it's interesting that you said that. Yeah, there's there's a lot of the same symbolism, you know, like with the with the making out with the wolf. You know, it's like the the beauty that is like approaching the beast that's like about to destroy it, but is like sort of captured in in resin almost, you know, um, and, uh, and and how the movie basically ends with the with the protagonists realizing what the purpose of a whole setup has been and then rejecting the purpose going, no, I'm not going along with this, you know, going failure, 
you know, and 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 as as Wicker Man ended with the with the sort of implication that maybe the crops would fail again next year, that maybe maybe Howie was actually cursing them to 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 you know suffer the consequences of of killing him uh it's that 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 is very much kind of echoed as well in the ending of this where you know all the setup kind of hardens the protagonists against uh the the uh oppositional forces and ultimately that is what that condemns the entire enterprise to disaster in the longer run well now you got me now you got me thinking because you know and i got maybe i have to parse this out here a little bit one of one of the other things is that um when we think of the wicker man we think of this island where are the there are these um these structures and rules that have that they they need to uh they need to do ritual there's rituals that happen that have to happen uh and and um the wicker man has to be killed at the end and i think when you think of we can think of postmodernism in some way as kind of a crisis of like uh, not just structure, but a crisis of regulation of rules, right? And you think at the end of the scene where um, the Wicker Man, um, why do I, f I forget his name at this point? Um, you know, Howie. He, Howie, yeah. Uh, he he looks at them and, and says, you know, your crops, I, this isn't the problem. Like he tries to re remember that scene where he's trying to rationalize with them, trying to use logic. And, um, you know, there, there's a kind of questioning of the rules that they've set up on this island that are applicable to them only. And there's this kind of like, come on, man, come on, right? And that's essentially what Whedon is doing to us in this horror film. He's shaking us in the same way. Come on, like this is, this is bullshit. This is this is not the way things ought to be. Um, I don't know. Yeah, and I and I think honestly, like I said, I think I think this is one kind of one of the weaknesses of the film. And like I said, you can compare it to The Wicker Man as an example. One of the things that uh, if you if you attend writing workshops or read books on how to write and stuff, one thing that that people will will tell you as far as world building. And, and I want to sort of sort of refer this to magic specifically. Like if you read, you know, guides on how to fantasy world build by people who have done this professionally, you know, for games and stuff like that. One of the things they'll say is, is you know, make sure that you lay all your rules of magic out before you write a single word of the of the actual book, and make sure that every time there's magic used, cross reference from your rules and make sure that all the rules are being obeyed. So, so that there's a consistent setup and a consistent expectation, right? Um, I feel like the Wicker Man does really the, the 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 part that strains credulity in the Wicker Man is how they find Howie to begin with. Once he actually arrives at the island, everything that they do to him is pre in in setting him up to properly be the the uh, the fall guy is it pretty much pretty much proceeds according to the rules that the film implicitly lays out uh, over the course over the course of its narrative and in in cabin in the woods i feel like the rules that it implicitly lays out it kind of doesn't try to follow nearly to nearly the same scrupulous extent and that's that that kind of weak is what weakens the 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 narrative of the film as a whole for me um that's that's probably my biggest element of the movie that I would critique is is you know precisely because it it is so critical of tropes in horror movies and so critical of of arbitrary and and kind of thoughtless elements in horror movies that it then is lazy about those elements in its own narrative construction is is a is a ding against the narrative um and but but anyway so to sort of to sort of shift away from criticism and back to sort of these parallels with other works one of the other things 
that I thought was really interesting about this movie is if you're familiar with Joss Whedon's works, and this was actually something that Mary uh, brought up, and she hasn't, she hadn't, uh, see, she's seen this movie before, and then we've been watching a bunch of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and then she saw the movie again for the second time. And she said she appreciated it a million times more the second time than the first, seeing it in context of other Joss Whedon works like Firefly and, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and stuff like that. And you can, if you if you've recently watched binge watch a bunch of Joss Whedon and then you watch Cabin in the Woods, you can see a huge number of parallels, both narratively and stylistically, between his other previous work and Cabin in the Woods, to the point where Cabin in the Woods honestly kind of feels like a ripoff of a lot of his previous work in 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 terms of a lot of the specific narrative elements. Like the notion of ancient ones as like these sort of primordial beings that that ruled over the earth in ages past and are, you know, would represent a terror if they were to come back to, to mortal existence. Um, that's something that you see very heavily in the later seasons of Angel. That's what kind of one of the one of the frames that the narrative is is uh, hinged on an angel. The notion of this um, underground uh, laboratory sort of environment keeping all these supernatural beasties in cells for, you know, various specific, you know, uh, institutional purposes is seen in earlier seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer together with the seemingly mundane shit that's happening on top that they're kind of like trying to manipulate to their own ends. Um, and, uh, and then stylistically, a lot of the, a lot of classic Joss Whedon elements manifest as well. For example, there's a thing that Joss Whedon really likes to do where, um, in, in, as far as scene transitions, one character will say a particular line and then you'll cut to the next scene and then another character in a completely different situation will say the same line in a completely different context. Another, or, or, or one character will say the first half of a sentence and then you cut to completely different context, completely different character, and it'll finish the sentence. Um, so it, this, is, this is really, it really works off of previous Joss Whedon stuff in a very, very direct way. And if you've watched a lot of Joss Whedon recently, it's quite obvious that he cribbed from all of his previous work in developing this. And, and it pretty much rehashes themes that you see expressed in previous Whedon works as well. Have you just created the Joss Whedon cinematic universe? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I... Everything that you're saying makes sense. I am not as familiar with Whedon's work as, as you are. I certainly haven't seen all of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I've seen some episodes, but not all of them. Um, and But everything that you mentioned that I see in this film that, that happens in other Whedon work, it works. Like, all of his tricks are, are good tricks. And uh, so I... I I don't know if what you were saying was a criticism of the film because if it was, it, I, you know, it, it didn't really work. It didn't really work as a criticism for me. Um, but yeah, I, I'm glad I, I know more about the, the Whedon verse now that uh, uh, we have a, a resident, thank you, Antonio, resident expert of the Whedon, the Joss Whedon cinematic universe. How trippy would it be if we go back and watch like season three or four of Buffy? And in the in the episodes where uh, like Spike and everyone, all the monsters are being held, and we find a big red button in one of the scenes, the purge button. I I'm almost tempted to go back and just kind of just kind of look over. I bet you there. I bet you that button finds its way in there. <laughs> There's a purge button that's like just really really nonchalantly just 
panned over. You never really notice oh, it. And one of the major subplots in one of the Buffy seasons is that all of the beasties get out of their holding pens and then, of course, immediately overrun the the like government security forces because they're yep. spectral beasties. Well, maybe Whedon will uh, pen the next Marvel movie and put in an all hell goes, uh, all hell breaks loose button that uh that loki will will press and that will be uh that will be our or sam jackson that'll be our uh our our marvel scene five or phase five <laughs> i would i would pay good money to have thanos talking to like you know the avengers and just in the middle of a conversation he's killed by kevin and like kevin takes over and he's the new villain right and you guys you guys know what kevin's from right I can't yes, be the only one. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Good. You're talking good. about Kevin from Home Alone. Yeah. <laughs> Elijah Wood just comes in and like fucking drop kicks Thanos. I. I. It, that'd be the best movie in the world. Best movie in the world. Sorry. Uh. Yeah. So we do have a we do have a question. Another. We're getting a lot of questions here. Um. So this. Uh. Let me scroll up a little bit. So. Um. The question was. And now I can't see it. Give me one second. Oh, um, do you think this film reflects how we all benefit from watching suffering? So I think of like the voyeurism in this film, right? So, and then, and then the question is, does, does horror ultimately help humanity or do we lose our humanity? So the question is reflecting on the benefit of watching suffering. Does horror help humanity or do we lose our humanity by doing it? What do you guys think? I think hard, the, hard, yeah. hard to transition from Elijah Wood into such a deep question. I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> I think I think the film wants us to say that the voyeurism is bad. The film, I think, the film basically. I don't know if it explicitly portrays it as as an, in a negative light, but it certainly um, portrays that the voyeurism um, creates a commodification that is not portrayed in positive terms. You know, it, it's it's the sort of thing that makes us all run around and, and bet on people's lives. You know what I mean? Um, and a, in a very kind of callous way, the, the callousness of it is emphasized by the fact that they, that they are, that she's like, Oh, they're just blowing off steam. You gotta, you gotta forgive them. It's, it's obvious to the outsider that this thing that's happening here is, is, you know, lacking empathy in kind of an alarming way. Um, and so I and and you know they're while while they say while they sort of excuse it by saying well dot there's other people watching you know we got to see the TNA um, before the for the benefit of the ancient ones they're also quite content to watch themselves you know what I mean so there is so there is a, a, a sort of a recurring theme where where the voyeurism is uh, exploitative ultimately. And not just beneficial, and of course, you know, for all, all all the voyeurism at the end comes to nothing as well. And so, I think I think if it has a message on it, it probably is a is a negative take on on the, the voyeurism. But I don't know that it that the movie sets out to treat watching suffering as as a moral question. I don't See, know. What do you guys think? I think I think it does. I think there's uh, there are moments when she's the quote unquote dumb blonde character um, is dancing around, and I was really uh, even in the uh, the the scene that Noah seems to celebrate more than any other scene, the uh, the the making out with the wolf uh, or the moose as she as as the stoner originally identifies it. Um, that th there's 
I was really aware of the male gaze in the in those um, scenes, and then of course the the film does uh, tease the tits, and then later on uh, shows the tits, uh, and the and you see that in the reaction of the the fellas in the in the control room. But I I also think it's an important point to. to note what Whedon is satirizing here, a Whedon and Goddard. I think we were, were short shrifting the director of the fucking movie, um, Drew Goddard as well, a co-writer as well. Um, he, they're satirizing dumb horror movies. And so answering the viewer's question, I think dumb horror movies make us worse people. Dumb horror movies make us uh, amoral, may, um, exercise that incredibly limbic um, desire to see tits, ass, and death. Um, Dumb horror movies do that. But the smarter ones, uh, I'm thinking of films like The Shining and uh, Silence of the Lambs, on and on and on. We can list our favorite horror films. And I don't think that those films objectify sex and violence in the same way that... Halloween and and some of the other ones that this one is satirizing. So uh, I I agree with Antonio in the way the the film sets this up, but I also think that it's important to know what the target of the satire is, and that's the the horror films that we all hate. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to have to echo Jim a little bit here. Um, so I really don't think that uh, horror as a genre necessarily has to be about voyeurizing suffering. And I think it definitely is a lot of times in America in the kind of films that sort of like we, we put out, you know, you have Saul, you have all of these slasher films and it's really focused on like blood and guts and watching people die and all that. Um, but I think in, in at large, um, we kind of talk about this sometimes on the podcast that horror is sort of a mirror uh, and a way to look at yourself in a lot of ways. And it says a lot about the person watching it. And so I think it does say something really interesting about America that a lot of our horror is about this sort of like voyeuristic, um, uh, vicarious sort of like killing. Um, and I think that kind of is a problem and it probably is harmful, but I don't think horror as a whole has to be about that. This is a, this is a really interesting question because, you know, when I... The you know this whole film has a, a kind of voyeurism to it. We're we're voyeurs of voyeurs. We're watching behind the scenes, the folks behind the scenes, right? So there's this kind of meta component to it. But the only scene in this film that made me feel even remotely I don't say scared, but just kind of um, off and made me kind of actually treat it like a legit horror film is actually the scene where um it, where uh, the final girl uh, where Dana is uh, uh, the film makes you think that she's actually being killed by um one of the zombie rednecks uh, on the dock and the music plays and it kind of, it's like, it's over. It's that over part. And it's the scene where you sort of, the camera pans out from the, um, from the, uh, uh, like the security camera essentially on the dock. And that makes you think it's over that you just, you're, she's going to die and that you're, you're, you're that part of the movie is over and that she legitimately, her life is ended. And um, it was the scene where he's kind of throwing her around like a rag doll. And that made me uncomfortable. I, uncomfortable is the word I'm thinking. It was the only scene in the movie that made me feel uncomfortable. And it made me feel uncomfortable when the camera sort of panned away and didn't maybe show me everything. It almost just kind of made me feel weird. Like here I am watching everyone die violently. You got a saw through the head. You know, we got all these violent scenes, but it's the one where she's being thrown around like a rag doll. And then the film just kind of cuts away and lets your mind wander. And it bothered me. And I, I don't, I, I think maybe that's connected to the question, but, um, 
that was the only part of it. And it had to do with kind of the camera looking away. It's ironic, right? Like the camera looking away was the part that made me feel a little uncomfortable. I don't know. It treated her death as nothing important. Yeah. Where in most of the most of the rest of the film, the deaths were important, and because it's optional whether the quote unquote virgin dies, um, it didn't really matter. Her entire life and her death didn't matter to the characters in the film. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I think that's what's most bothersome about violence in films is when it's consequenceless violence, uh, violence that is there only for the blood and guts, uh, violence that you don't actually feel the um, the importance of or the impact of. Um, that's what bothers me the most about about violence, and in fact. Even I, I make the argument that many of the Marvel movies, many many of the MCU films, are some of the most violent films I've ever seen, and it's all treating the violence as consequenceless. And I find those I find that really off-putting about a lot of those canonical MCU films, including Whedon's um, Avengers. And, and well, and that's Black. probably why Thor uh, Ragnarok is rated NC seventeen. Know if you know. <laughs> should be right well for <laughs> Ragnarok it's it that's that movie's a comedy with a uh, Marvel movie <laughs> attached but that gets us off on a uh, on another tangent um and yeah I think that that might be why I I sort of share your feeling Noah about uh about Dana's supposed death um because it it didn't it, it didn't seem like it mattered and and that was a that that seemed like a disrespect to the character at that time, and uh, and yeah. therefore it 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 made me more uncomfortable. Yeah, maybe that speaks to the strength of the movie. With all the talk of satire, the fact that you actually do feel something for the final girl or, or for a a character in a horror film, and it oddly enough is at a time where the camera turns away and it, you're just not meant to care about what happens to her. I think is. Um, that's very meta on like a lot of levels. Very interesting. Um, so I want to score this movie, but I also want to do something a little different. I want you to score the film. Um, usually what we do is we score the film on how scary it is. I guess we could keep that for this because I don't think any of us are going to think this was a scary movie at all. I don't think that's what its aim was, but I'd be, I'd be curious. If one of you says this is a 10 out of 10 scariest film I've ever seen, you're banned from this podcast for life. Um, so uh, uh, we, I want to score it by just sort of our, our normal score of how, how good the film is overall, and then also what your favorite monster is. That's, the, that's actually the most important part. It's the entire reason that we're doing this podcast tonight is uh, the just sincere interest of what your favorite monster is because those monsters consisted of an alien beast, an angry molesting tree. I don't remember that part, that there was an angry molesting tree. I have to go back and watch that. The bride, clowns, deadites, demons, dismemberment goblins, the doctors, dolls, a dragon bat, a giant, a giant snake, hell lord, which we have dubbed in the film dubs Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain, the Huron, jack-o'-lantern, Kevin, it's Elijah Wood, basically Frodo tries to fuck you up. That would have been the best. I'm sorry. I'm not ever going to get over that. The merman, uh, the mummy, the mutants, the reanimated, reptilius, Sasquatch, scarecrows, sexy witches, that may have been a good one. I would have liked to have seen that one. Anyway, the snowman, sugar plum fairy, the twins, unicorn, probably the best kill in the whole film, vampires, werewolves, witches, wraiths, zombie redneck torture family, and then regular zombies. So of all of those, 
which are your favorite and how do you score this film? I'm just gonna throw it out there. I wanna go, I wanna go last. It's the unicorn for the win. That was the greatest scene. I, I actually wanna go first just so I can say how awesome the unicorn running into the guy and impaling him was. I, I shouldn't take this much joy in a, a, a character's death, but when well, it's also the music, the music, like the little, <laughs> that was um... exactly. And there's this little bit where the unicorn is sort of just running around and it's like, oh, look at the unicorn inside all the, and then fucking stabs. That was, uh, I lost my shit over that one. Um, so yeah, I give this, I give this film an eight. Um, I was, it was hilarious. I love this movie. Um, it's, it's an eight for me. And uh, that was the original rating uh, in 2012. And I rewatched it again today. And I enjoyed the all shit goes to hell uh, uh, scene even more. I actually watched it twice because uh, my father called during the all shit goes to hell. And I'm like, no, I got to enjoy this. Shut up. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, that's it's an eight. And uh, my favorite monster is definitely the killer fucking unicorn. All right, so favorite monster is definitely going to have to be the Cenobite. What's what's his name again, Noah? Fornicus, Lord of Bondage and Pain. Fornicus, yes, 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 yes. So the reason that this is going to be my favorite monster is because of that scene whenever they're coming down in the elevator and she turns around and they have this moment where they're just sort of like, they make eye contact and they're just looking at each other and it's almost this sort of like weird sullen thing. And somehow in the back of my mind, what that reminded me of is how badly they fucked over that series and how it started out with so much promise, Hellraiser, and how it's total garbage now. And I feel like some of the sadness of that was captured in that moment when they're gazing into each other's eyes. Um, I don't know, but that's probably just me. That's probably no, just me. No, no, uh, <laughs> uh, she screams at him, right? Like, fuck, like, why? Like, fucking yeah, why? That's beating on the glass and yeah. it's covered in blood. And he's just kind of standing there looking. Yeah, dude. Um, and it really got me. It really got me. Um, <laughs> overall, though, I think I'm going to have to give this. Uh, it's probably going to land as a seven for me. And the reason that it's not higher, I really do love this. I love what Joss Whedon was trying to do. I really connect with the movie. It's, it's fantastic. I love a lot about it. But there is something now that I have seen that sort of overrides, I think, the cynicism and the point that Joss made. Um, and I, I can talk about that in a moment if you want to go on with the scoring, but there's like a, a thing that is like this that I think is better um, that I could talk about. No, I, I want to know what is the thing yeah, that is yeah, better. Yeah, go for it. Right. So, okay, so one of the things that we really didn't cover too much in here and like a word that I really wanted to throw out is intertextuality, and that's kind of that process of, you know, you have this thing and it references a lot of other um, sources like maybe literature or movies or music. You get inspiration from all of those different kinds of things and you pull it into the work that you're creating. And so that, I think, is sort of what's constrained horror into a box, right? It's like it's why we have such well-defined tropes and why they show up in so many movies. Um and there's a really bad way to do that, too. It's like you see in the new Star Wars movies where like literally everything is just a reference so that you can kind of like have that emotional moment like where, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, and you, you fork over your dollars and it becomes really extremely harmful. However, there's a good way to do that. And I think that's sort of embodied in Stranger Things where literally everything is a reference to 80s movies and they do it so well and so subtly that it doesn't feel like a ripoff. And so I think that taken 
as kind of like an example and as a template for horror moving forward, I think it's a really good segue to be able to use some of these tropes and make these references and do that thing that they love to do, but also make it original and something new, right? Um, I don't know. So it's like a little more more of that um, pastiche style of like referencing as opposed to the satire that we see in this movie. And the fact that that's so hopeful, I think is really good. I don't know. So that actually sort of lowers my score of this movie a little bit because you can still make that same point that I think Joss was making, but make it like more of a hopeful thing as opposed to let's tear everything down. You've actually done a great job Ben, of hitting on exactly the thing that I don't like about Joss Whedon is precisely that, that his, his, his existential commentary is very, good as far as the issues it raises, as far as its accuracy, as far as its salience. But as far as its conclusion, he ends on too cynical of a note. He ends on he ends on a note where where there is goodness in man and people ought to be good and and stuff, but just kind of as 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 a primal scream against the the ultimate un, unfathomability of the universe and not really as something that that can be um preserved from generation to generation, something that's valuable in and of itself, as opposed to simply because we've assigned it some kind of arbitrary value in our few flickering moments in this whirling mass of chaos, you know? Um, and, and that, and, and, and you're right that, that stranger things and you all, I think the comparison to stranger things is brilliant because it, it is, you, that is actually a really good example of something that does actually, as you, well put it well intertextual intertextually raise a bunch of references for its audience in a way that doesn't um that doesn't sort of rip up the narrative or come to hog the the narrative as it kind of does in um in this particular movie in cabin in the woods and i i take pretty much that pretty much ben's take is is very similar to mine i would say um that this this is a very creative movie. It says some important things, um, and uh, and it's fun and it's relatively well made, um, and uh, it, you know it's certainly one of the better horror movies to be made in recent in recent times. Um, but it does also, in the same vein, um, show the signs of having been written in three days, and I feel like a few more passes, a few more editorial passes on the script to tighten up its core themes and express what it wanted to express with fewer strains of logic and fewer kind of quizzical scratch your head moments. Um, and maybe a little bit less of a distracting tone would have strengthened the movie tremendously. So it is a good movie. I do like it. Um, but I'm going to, I, my, the rating that I settled on was 7.5 because it's solid. It's got good stuff going for it. The things that prevent it from, from aiming a little bit higher are, you know, primarily just that it it's it's a, still a little bit of an immature story. It's a it's a story that 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 is a great beginning of an idea, and the realization is reasonably solid. But it's but it's the kind of thing that that you know that two really smart people can put together in three days, as opposed to something that has been worked on and polished until all the little you know burrs come out of it. And so I, I understand the appeal of the less polished product, particularly in this kind of vehicle. Um, but I do think that 
particularly in light of the comparison Ben just made, it's it's fairly obvious that there are some weaknesses in the movie that prevented it from having perhaps the seminal impact that it could have, and that maybe Stranger Things will have. I don't know. It remains to be seen. So you uh, you got to tell us your fit your uh, your your favorite. Oh right, favorite yeah, monster. monster. Okay, yeah. so favorite monster and and this and and you know now let me switch from shitting on Joss Whedon to praising Joss Whedon again. Um, my favorite monster is the tentacle, that that just reaches out and grabs what's her face and just you know punches through the the wall, grabs her and just hauls her off and then that's it. She she dies in like the space of two seconds and there's no more commentary on her as a character. Um, and, and I like it because, first of all, you know, it's a tentacle. You got to love the Lovecraftian element of it. Um, you got to love the absurd element of it. How was that being kept in one of those little boxes? You know, you know what I mean? Um, and the, uh, the other thing that I like about it is, you know, again, it emphasizes this. The, the, the thing that I think Whedon does best on the existential element is the notion of is the is the notion that notion of chaos you know that notion that that every moment is transient and and to some extent arbitrary um and so many of his deaths you know like with with wash you know in the in serenity they, they land and everything seems like it's okay and then just all of a sudden just totally without you couldn't see it coming just boom he's dead right um you and and like I said, if you watch through Angel and Buffy, you'll see this over and over and over again. You'll see this uh, Tara when Tara dies in in Buffy. Uh, it's precisely not the the intentional shot that kills Tara. It's the unintentional shot that just wings off randomly, and nobody saw it coming. Nobody anticipated it. Nobody intended it in any way, shape, or form. But boom! Now somebody's dead. And uh, the tentacle operates in pretty much the same way. You know, here's a character that you spent the whole movie kind of seeing in action, getting to know a little bit, kind of liking, and and she's dead without without even having seen the monster before on screen. You know what I mean? With that, there's there's no there's no checkoffs anything with regard to her death. She just dies. She's just gone in two seconds. And there's no not even any commentary. There's there's not even any let's process this. It's just it happens. And because of that. That 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 element of it, um, I think that's the the best monster, my favorite monster in this movie, precisely because it, it echoes the the chaos that is that underpins the major themes here. It's really interesting. Yeah, I, the more you're talking about the chaos, I'm, I'm thinking back even in that scene in Buffy um, where Tara dies, it's like a stray bullet. Right, it's just the the gun goes off this way. Bam! I just just got to that part in Buffy. By the way, I'm on the last season, and that uh, that destroyed me. Just absolutely destroyed me. But you're right; it's off guard. It's kind of out of left field. So it's really interesting that this seems to be a, a thematic presence in a lot of his films. Um, I'm gonna have to really, I'm, I'm like halfway through Angel, so now I'll have to kind of look for that when I uh, watch the rest of Angel. Um, really interesting. Um, so for me, I, I'm gonna give this film an eight, and that's the highest I can give a film that doesn't scare me, right? We're talking about horror films, and I, I don't think the intention of this film really was to scare anybody. I feel like if you're the sort of person that got scared by Cabin in the Woods, you're the exact person this film is criticizing. like. It didn't scare me at all, so I got to give it an eight. Um, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoy, I enjoyed the cynicism. I guess I think the things that uh, that maybe Ben it, it didn't, or Ben and um, Antonio maybe didn't like so much, especially with the ending. I I dug that. I I liked um, I liked the cynicism. Uh, I mean, I don't it says maybe more about me than I'd like to admit, but um, I, I I didn't want anything hopeful in this. I think sometimes it's just good to have a nice good shit on a genre and, and just see what comes next. You know what I mean? I, I think, I think that there's a time and a place 
for that sort of thing. Um, now, it, it, now I'm really going to look for that in the rest of Whedon's stuff too. It's kind of another thematic thing because I, I noticed uh, both of you had, or um, Antonio specifically had mentioned that. Uh, so I'll look for that. But in terms of this movie, the way it functioned in this movie, um, so I, I, I use the word nihilism. Maybe that's too strong of a, a term for this. But the the way it kind of ended, I don't know, kind of spoke to me. I dug that. I, if it, if it was a little more hopeful, that would have. Uh, we'd be talking in the sixes here for good old Noah. Uh, so it has definitely one of my favorite scenes uh, with the wolf being made out with. It's great. By the way, during that scene, they uh, I, I studied the hell out of the scene, as you can clearly see. I'm like a scholar <clears throat> when it comes to the scene. But they used uh, uh, sugar crystals because they had to do that take so many times. They wanted to have dust, like dust-looking stuff on the wolf. And um, the actress kind of complained she was making out with the wolf so much. Um, so they put they put sugar crystals. So if you watch really closely, which I clearly did, um, you can see that there are there are sugar crystals. Anyway, so probably shouldn't have said that, but yeah, uh, great movie. Eight, I'd give it an eight. Um, my favorite monster um, is actually the uh, the doll masked serial killers, which is a reference to what I think is one of the great underrated horror films of the last decade, which is The Strangers. Um, uh, my favorite, I, I made a video about this a month ago on our YouTube channel, if you watch it, where I go through my top favorite uh, quotes, deaths and stuff in horror films. And uh, my number one favorite line from any horror film that always stuck with me was from The Strangers. And we all know it, right? It's the ending scene where Liv Tyler asks all of them, why are you doing this to us? And the blonde girl in the doll mask says, because you were home. Which like just gave me such a fucking EBGB. I don't know. I I, I was kind of young when I watched it, but um, it just it it just imprinted something about human nature. And I, I and I always think about that quote and and those doll masks. So when I saw that in this movie, it was just a great homage, I think, to uh to that maybe maybe to the slasher uh flicks in general. It wasn't like I don't recall if there was anything like a Jason or a Michael Myers esque monster in this. There are certainly scenes where that's the case, where like. Uh, one of the redneck zombies is coming out of the water, which is very Jason. But in terms of like an actual monster that's in the pi uh, in the group, uh, I don't, I don't, I can't recall if anyone explicitly is like that. But uh, yeah, I, one of my one of my all time, I have all time favorites, my all time underrated films. One of the th ones I'll go back to that say it's most underrated is The Strangers. So I felt like that was a cool homage. So uh, seven point five eight. I think we're all okay. Yeah, I didn't expect anyone to give this a nine, I, despite the wolf making out scene. Uh, nine was a little too high. So uh, cool. All right, do you guys have anything else you want to add before we close up shop? Cool. Awesome. So uh, thanks for watching. Um, check us out on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, we usually post a lot of stuff. We get into fights now with other podcasts. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but we uh, we have good discussions about horror films and um, sort of the, the philosophy and the fears undergirding them. Like we always say in this podcast, we like to do this. We like to have these conversations because... The fear in horror films says a lot about you. We barely touched on that tonight, and this isn't one of those films that really stresses that, but that's part of one of the aims of this podcast is to think clearly about the nature of fear in particular films and why certain movies you're drawn to and why you're not as a means of understanding yourself. Uh, and so I think this film is really a, a way of understanding the genre in its entirety. Um, so maybe something of a similar... I mean, we definitely needed to include it because of that, because of the meta nature of the film. But uh, if you liked what you saw tonight, uh, check us out. In two weeks, we're doing um, what is probably the most Lovecraftian film, probably our first Lovecraftian film, which is The Thing, 1982. So in two weeks, we're doing that, taking a break next week, but I think we'll have some we'll have some uploads. Um, I'm working on a couple videos this week. I think a couple of us are. So two weeks, we're going to do The Thing. And then I'm super excited for the week after that. We are doing Creep 2. 2017 Creep 2. We'll probably be comparing it 
to uh, our original review and analysis of Creep. So check that out in the next couple weeks on our channel if you haven't seen it. Creep is on Netflix. Um, fantastic film, Creep 2. I think most of us who have seen it would agree that it's it's better than the original. So just gonna throw that out there. So yeah, uh, if you liked what you saw, subscribe, uh, check out our channels, and uh, we'll see you guys in two weeks for uh, The Thing.